0: Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. This is episode one in a seven-episode repost of a sermon series from 2012 called Touchy Issues out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Throughout this sermon series, we covered a myriad of issues surrounding sexuality. This week you're going to hear from Lead Pastor Nick Gibson as he walks us through the foundation of how we should think through our sexuality. If this episode sparks your interest to look into these issues more in-depth, more resources about this topic are available on the Engage and Equip blog. You can find a link to it in the description. Thanks for listening.
1: Hey, if you have a Bible and you do because there's one in the pew rack in front of you, if you didn't bring one, why don't you open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's page 1777 in the uh, pew Bible. Did you guys like Lewis Guest last week? Good. I got to stay at his house. I was in Minneapolis this week um, at a church planning network conference, and I got to hang out with him and critique his sermon and encourage him, and it was great. Um, Two weeks ago, I left off at at verse 8 in chapter 6. We talked about this issue of lawsuits and how that affects the gospel and the church and Christ and which means it would stand to reason if we're preaching through a book that I'd start in verse 9 and go from there. But I'm not going to, um, and, he, and here's why. Because I believe, not because of the nature of the thing, but because of the cultural situation, that when the issue of homosexuality comes up in the Bible, we have to talk about it. And there's two reasons why I'm going to do that next week. Because one, I want another week to prepare. I've been preparing for three or four weeks already. Um, this, has been I, this has been an area of research for me since the middle 90s, since I went to college. I've read a couple thousand pages on this, but I just, still, I wanted a little more time. Uh, I've been corresponding with a scholar on this at Wheaton College and some things. And I, I want to make sure that what I say is sufficiently loving as well as sufficiently clear. And it's very difficult to speak in this context context where most of us just have a visceral emotional reaction whenever we hear about this and uh, on both sides of it. And um, so it's very difficult to talk about well. And so uh, one more time. The second, though, is because I think that we need to reflect on the Christian sexual ethic broadly before we narrow down to something, anything, anything specific, but particularly that, that we have in front of us. A biblical understanding of how God what God's intentions were for the human body and human sexuality before we get on a particular sense and that's what the next passage is about and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read both passages and then I'm going to preach on verses 12 to the end of the chapter then next week I'm going to come back Um, now of course the danger of that in Madison is that if you say that out loud and you give people a week to prepare we could have protesters here next week and so just be ready for that and we'll just may have to hug some new visitors and just, we'll just go with it, you know? So, um, so I'm going to start in verse 9 of First Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now the quotations here in the next verse represent what the Corinthians had written and said to Paul. So this is an answer back and forth, okay? I want you to see that because quotations, who knows what that means. So you say, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Um, If I had had to preach this sermon 50 years ago, it would be perfectly legitimate. Okay, are you smiling because I wouldn't have existed? Um, It would have been perfectly legitimate for me to be blessedly tasteful on the things that I wouldn't mention. And the reason for that is that 50 years ago, there was a general cultural consensus as to what the body was for, what sex was for, and what was moral and immoral and that sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't wildly disagreed upon. And so I could just sort of affirm this and talk about those wild deviants who don't do exactly— you know, I mean, I don't know what I'd talk about. I'd just be like, well, I guess we all agree on this. Let's move on. Um, the, the fact is, is that that cultural agreement— has entirely disintegrated in the last 50 years. There is virtually nothing agreed upon about human sexuality in our modern culture except that rape is wrong. Uh, not, you know, any non-consensual sex, especially with minors, is immoral. You probably should stay away from animals. I mean, I mean, it's very minimal, the things that we can just say everybody agrees about. And because of that, I'm going to have to be pretty direct and pretty specific for the next couple of weeks, and well, it takes four or five weeks we 'll actually be talking about sexuality because chapter seven is there 's a lot about that in there um, and so uh, I, most of you know that i 'm a controversialist, I thrive in conflict and controversy, and so i am really i 'm really trying to um, only be so much as is necessary, but i, don't, I need to be, I need to be careful to do my job so i 'm going to be pretty straightforward here, and um, there are certain things that are very explicit that I believe the emotional reaction a lot of people are going to have is, would be such embarrassment that I've decided not to talk about them today, but we're going to talk— I'm going to do a session next Sunday at 5 or 6 o'clock. We'll have it in the Bulletin next week um, just for that because I just don't— there are certain things that even, even as, as direct as I'm going to be this morning, there's a whole nother level of directness of what should married couples be doing in the bedroom and how does that relate to the gospel? And there are levels of frankness that we're going to engage in because we have to. Because there's nobody teaching anything on this, really. And, but that's going to happen on Sunday afternoon because some of you, I just want to spare you that because you don't care or something, I don't know. But, um, so I'm going to take it to a whole other level, but there's even a whole other level past that and I'm going to try to spare you that. But before we talk at all about sexuality, the most important thing to take from this passage is not a theology of sexuality. It's not. The most important thing to take from this passage is a the theology of the body. That's what this passage is mainly about, what your body is and what your body is for. Because what we need to understand and realize is that throughout the history of the world, and not least today, people imagine spirituality as non-physical. There's, you know, there's the body and then there's the spirit. There's, and so spirituality is how we feel, our mystical experiences, our inner emotional life, how we find psychological significance, all those kinds of things that 's all spirituality and that 's all internal that 's all in your heart, and that 's not to split necessarily you can talk about it, but it 's your inner feelings that nobody else has access to and that 's what real spirituality is and this passage essentially is saying that that view of, that that view of spirituality is is sort of hogwash that um, spirituality real authentic spirituality is irreducibly and fundamentally physical. That what you are spiritually is what you do with your body. That whatever we mean by our spirit, and we are spiritual beings, in the sense of non-physical, there is more than physicality to human beings, Christians believe. But what this is teaching is is that the relationship, the compositeness of our physical bodies in whatever we are spiritually, is the fusing of that is sufficient that you can't speak of your spirituality completely apart from what you do physically. That's what it's saying. And we, we need to realize is that is a fundamental departure from our culture because what our culture would say is like, you can't judge their spirituality. It's, it's, you know, it's in their heart. You can't judge somebody's heart. You can't get—well, yeah, you can because what's in their heart comes out of their body. That's, what, that's just a fact. If I get in an argument with my wife and we're having this mean fight and I, and I, and I rail on her— I can say that I love her, that that's what's in my heart. But that's not what's in my heart. What's in my heart came out in the fight. And what's in my heart is this justification of me and me being right and getting my way and getting her in line with what I want her to do. That's what's in my heart because that's what I did. And, I mean, Jesus said, out of the overflow of a heart, people speak. And out of the overflow of a heart, people also act. And what you do with your body is who you are and what you believe and what your spirituality is. And, and here's why this is so fundamentally Christian, because um, what does Scripture explicitly say will be the means by which we're judged? By whether or not we're what? This is participatory. Loving, right? Loving. I mean, the, the mark of a Christian, biblically, is love. Now, can you love psionically, like psychically? Right? I'm gonna I'm gonna love you. Do you feel it? Here we go, ready? I'm gonna love you psionically. Do you feel it yet? Right? That's not how it goes. Love is something you do, right? If you love somebody, you talk to them. If you love somebody, you listen to them. and You look at them when they're talking, and you shut your mouth while they're talking, and then you talk, and they shut their mouth, and you change their diaper, and you feed them, and you are there when something's happening that's terrible, and you—that's what love is. Love is something you do. And so—and that's how we're—I mean, Jesus is completely explicit. And then, and then how does God love us? Right? Biblically, in history, he speaks, he reveals, right? He acts for our deliverance. He, he becomes a human being and dies for us in self-sacrificial action so that we can be saved. He raises Christ from the dead. He, he acts. God is a speaking and acting God. Because, Why? Is it because he's got stuff to say? Well, he's had stuff to say for eternity. No, it's because that's what love is. God is a loving God. God is holy. God is truthful, but he is full of holy love. And love comes out. Comes out. It it happens. And we don't—we can't do things spiritually the way God is. We can't speak universes into existence. We don't have the kind of internal spiritual potency God has. All of our potency resides in our body. And so the potency of our love that comes forth from us has to come through our physical body. Christianity is a religion that has everything to do with how you use your body, what your body is for, because it is wrapped up in love. And listen, you've got to understand, the vast majority of our neighbors do not believe that about spirituality. They don't believe that. They don't believe that spirituality is fundamentally physical, and Christianity says, yes, there is a non-physical, there is a spiritual, there is even a mystical mode and part of spirituality, but its authenticity and and its reality is always related to what we do, and therefore, there is no such thing as spirituality that isn't bodily in Christianity. It it, just—it's just an—it's a misnomer, and it's a fantasy. And we want—listen, you—this is important because we want a non-physical spirituality. We want it bad. Because you can hide. You can say whatever you want. You do whatever you want. And just be like, don't judge me. I'm spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. And then we just do whatever we want with our bodies. And so our our sinfulness and our selfishness and our depravity, we—listen, we want— a non-physical spirituality. And let me just tell you, th- then Christianity isn't for you. If, if, you, if you don't want to get over that and realize that's part of our depravity and you want God to show you what it means to love him and love others with your body and that that's what real spirituality is and issues forth out of love. If you don't want that, if you're like, no, it's Nick, it's just, it's me in, in here having an that experience. That's cool. And you're free to do that. And I believe very strongly you should be allowed to do what you 're convicted you should do but i 'm just telling you christianity isn 't for you, and if you think you can be a Christian that way, the only way to do that is being, by being profoundly intellectually dishonest that 's all i 'm saying now the the context here is the reason why the Apostle Paul writes this is because you got a church where these guys have accepted Jesus and they don 't think that their body relates to their spirituality, and so they keep going to prostitutes because in Corinth, that was pretty normal for adult men. Um, from adolescence on to go to prostitutes. It didn't have the kind of cultural scorn it has in our day um, and used to have more of. And it was just kind of stuff men did, you know? And so these guys were like, well, what do those, those have to do with each other? What does Christianity and going to prostitutes have to, have even have to do with each other? And Paul's like, um, a lot. A lot. So what I want to do for the next 90 minutes is I want to um, go through—I'm just kidding— um, is five, five biblical points. I just want to go through this passage and point out the five reasons why he's always arguing, and then um, some applications and a final question. And so here we go. So the first is this, um, that what we think is sexual freedom is really sexual slavery. What we think is sexual freedom— really is sexual slavery. If you look at the passage, it says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Then you gotta ask yourself, are you the kind of person that says, I'm, I'm going to do this because I, am I allowed to do it? Or is it good to do this? You can learn a lot about yourself by just asking yourself the question, do two do things because nobody can tell you you can't, versus you do the thing because it's actually good. You see, who's saying is, yeah, you may have the authority or the right to do something. But if you're a Christian, that's really not what your authority is for. That's not why Jesus made you free. Jesus made you free to use your authority to do what is good, what's beneficial. And not really for you, but for other people. Because Christianity is supposed to be about love, right? But the next passage is even worse. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, um, that's funnier in Greek because permissible and mastered are built on the same root. So it's a word play. They both have this root exousi in them. So it's, I will not be—so you could say like this, I have the power, but he says, yeah, but don't be overpowered. Or it's within my dominion, yeah, but it will dominate you. So they're saying, listen, don't I have every right to go to prostitutes? Well, the answer theologically is no. But, you know, Paul has preached the gospel to these people. He said, Christ has made you free, right? Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. There's enormous amount of freedom in Paul's preaching, and there is in the gospel. And they go, well, this is part of it. And he goes, okay, you can say that. You can say that. It's not true, but you can say that. But here's the problem. The very thing you think you're using your freedom for is going to make you a slave because the idea that you can make sex be whatever you want it to be is hopelessly naive. You can't overcome the reality of what you are, and so when you think you can make sex about just fluid exchange and exciting our nervous system for, you know, and it doesn't have to mean anything more than that, the fact is, is that that's a false view of what a human is, and it can never work that way. And you can say all you want, the people who get involved when they have sex with each other, they're just psychologically weaker and they have bonding issues and they're not whatever. But the fact is is that you just don't know what a human being is if you think that's the case, and if you manage to get yourself to the point where you can just do that, it's really because you've broken something about how you're emotionally wired to be, not because you're stronger and tougher and freer than everybody else. And what Paul is saying is, is that if you believe that, you're using your freedom to make yourself a slave. And I mean, I think the sexual re- revolution is a great example of that. Um, sex is freer now, but are we, but are we more sexually free? Meaning, is it better? And it's—I I don't think it is. And by, by no standard scientifically, in any way it's been measured in the last 30 years, is it better for anybody? Let's go on to the next one. I, I, there's a whole lot more to say about these, but we'll just have to— Okay. Um, second is, theologically, your body is permanent. It is not a throwaway. You see, it's very common in Greco-Roman culture. In this culture, they thought, you know, the body is just the body; it dies. The higher part of the human being is the soul or the spirit; it goes to be with the absolute or whatever. And, um, you know, and that's all there is to it. And so, um, you know, what does it matter what we do with the body? It doesn't matter what we do with the body; it's a throwaway, right? And if you look at the next verse here, it says, "Food for the stomach and stomach for food." Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this verse is about food, right? It's a euphemism, right? It's, I have a desire. I'm, I'm hungry, right? And that desire was made to eat, right? I get hungry because I'm supposed to eat. So, I have a sexual desire. What does that mean? I'm supposed to have sex. So, I, I, I like, the body just wants to have sex. The prostitutes are available. It's just the way the body works. And God, and, and then, and then, so, in, with this translation, what it looks like it says, and, and this, I hope that this will be helpful, but God will destroy them both. Now, the, the difficulty here is, is that in Greek, there's no punctuation. There's no capitals. So you've got to figure out where to put punctuation. So another way to translate this would be this, that the Corinthian quotation actually ends here. And then Paul's rebuke starts here. So the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God's going to destroy them both, right? So you got sex. you got the body. God's going to—you know, you just do what you want now, and then God's going to wipe all that stuff away, and then we're going to go—our spirit's going to go and be with God, and blah, blah. blah. And then Paul goes, oh, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Meaning, God isn't going to destroy it. The, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. How do we know that? Because by his power, God raised the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus, from the dead. Meaning meaning that when God raised Jesus, he didn't raise him spiritually. He raised Jesus bodily, Right? And the promise is that He will raise us also, meaning not take your spirit out of your body when your body dies and disintegrates and gets composted, but it goes and your spirit goes. God, no, no, no. Your ultimately, your body is raised. You will be a composite physical creature forever. Therefore, and there's not discontinuity. It's not like you get rid of this body; they make a totally different one. Might even be a different gender. Who knows? What's going to be just wings and? jetpacks and stuff, and then you get that, and now they put your soul with that one. No, it it, it, if you get to chapter 15, it says that there is discontinuity between. I mean, your body raised in, 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 in the end is not identical exactly in every single possible way it is now. But what it says is that there is continuity. That whatever you end up being is recognizably similar to what you are now. There's continuity. The body that you have, in a meaningful sense, is the body that you will have. And therefore, it's not a throwaway. And therefore, it matters what you do with it. Does that make sense? Well, then, if you agree, we'll just keep going. The third is, he, are, he says, your bodies are members of Christ. That is, our physical bodies make up Christ's spiritual body in the world. Um, it's, it's pretty common to not really think of— you know, if you think of, like, if you become a church member or a something member— Normally, you think of, like, your name going on the roll, you know, or something like that. Um, but that's not what the word means. The word's original meaning, and its meaning in this context, is, is bodily. So just think of the, the word to be dismembered, right? Do you know what that means? Like, you get dis body parts cut off, right? That's what dismembered means. That's because member means body. And so he says your body is a member. That, not, not a member on a roll, but literally your body is part of a greater body that is Christ's body. And therefore, the significance of your body is not just whatever you want your body to mean. The significance of your body is that it is attached to and part of and expresses and exhibits and is Christ's body. And so then the question is, what should you do not just with your body, but what should be done with a body that belongs to Jesus? Right? And then he goes back to Genesis 2.24 and he says, that says when a man and woman come together in sexual relations— that they become one flesh, right? In some way, they become profoundly one in a way that is permanent. C.S. Lewis said it this way, that when a man and a woman come together, they form and forge a relationship that must be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Okay? Now, put the logic together. You've got a prostitute. Genesis 2.24 is true about having sex with her. Your body is part of Christ's body. Should these go together, You see? You see, Bill's got it. No. No, they're not—they're not supposed to go together. And if you think about it that way, it makes perfect sense that they shouldn't go together. But if you think your body's a throwaway, you don't think your body is vitally connected to Christ, just your spirit is, then it—then can these go—it doesn't—what does it matter? Yeah, they become one flesh. Who cares? It's a throwaway. What does it matter? But if you realize that you are part of Christ's body, then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I'm not sure that's supposed to happen. There's a couple other places where that's talked about. We'll get to those in due course in this book. Number four is sexual immorality uniquely affects the body. Now, um, in a lot of contexts, it's been the case where Christians have treated sexual sin of any kind as sort of a bigger deal than any other kind of sin, right? Right? You've seen that? You've seen that? And part of the reason why that happens is definitely that people love to be self-righteous and condemn more sins that we don't do. And so— for those of us not involved in those, it makes us feel good to think that those other people are worse. It's the mob mentality. You know, the the mob's worse than me. They're not going to kill us all, so I'm safe. And it's that way with God. You know, it's you know, God's got to kill everybody worse than me before He can kill me, and He's not going to do that. Surely, so I'm okay. So let's make sure that the sexually immoral people are on the wickeder side of me in the in the coming before God lineup, and that's that's really dumb. Okay. And that's really why that happens sometimes. But there's another reason why sometimes people feel that way and think that way, and that's because of this verse. Because um, it said, like, if you look in 18, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, right? Flee, why? All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, do you see that? I mean, that seems to be making a contrast between all other sins— and sexual immorality-based sins. And the reason is not in this context that it's more guilt, right? That it's fundamentally worse morally, right? If you go back to the the verses up above it in verses 9 to 11, it's very clear that people who are sexually immoral— and people who are greedy, swindlers, slanderers, drunkards, and all that kind of stuff can all be washed by, sanctified, justified by, made right with God by the cross of Jesus, right? So it's clear clearly that non-sexual sins can get you can get you where you don't want to go, and the cross can get everybody where we need to go. And so this is—it's not an issue of unforgivable guilt, is it? So what is the issue? And I, I, I really wish I had about 30 minutes for just this, but— Let's leave it here. That there is a way in which sexual sin doesn't just come out of the body, but it comes back into the body in a way other sins don't as viscerally. Because our sexual selves are rooted not just in how we think, but how our brains function, how our emotions, how our body reacts to things. And when... When sexual immorality comes out of our body, it comes back and in affects into our body in a way that nothing else really does. It gets rooted in our physical and bodily being that self-confirms and draws us back to it again and again and again, and it breaks us in a way that other sins don't really. Because of how rooted sexual appetites are in our body— And so he's saying, listen, one of the reasons you have got to run from this thing is because there is a way in which sexual immorality hurts you and breaks you and gets its hooks in you and twists you and bends you in a way other things don't, really. There's another level, and because of that, you need to take it extremely seriously, and you need to realize that the body isn't for that. Does that make sense? Sixth. It's kind of a lot of—fifth. It's kind of a lot of points today, right? It's great if you're a visitor. Okay. <laughs> and that is that you are a temple of God's spirit if you're a believer in Jesus, right? So this, here's the verse. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, it's important to recognize that um, that this is, not, this is not saying your spirit houses Like sometimes, you know how people say when Je- Jesus became my friend— and when I accepted Jesus, he came to live in my heart. Right? Have you, have you ever said that? Jesus came to live in my heart. And that's fine. That's totally fine. Jesus did come to live in your heart. But here's the, here's the danger of that. You say heart, and it either sounds ridiculous that he lives, like, within your pericardium, or that, like, he— or you believe he lives psychologically within your heart, like, in terms of, like, in your head, like, Jesus is in there somewhere. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus— through the Spirit has come to live in your body. That's what it, that's what it says. Now, exactly what that means spatially, I, there's not a verse on that, so I'm not going to be able to tell you. But what it does say is that Jesus does not come just to live with your spirit, so your spirit and God's spirit have this kind of communion, and your body's over here kind of, you know, looking at the time, wondering when the two you are going to get over each other. But But that the Spirit of God comes and lives within you. So your body becomes a housing, in a way, of God, a physical housing, just like the temple was a physical housing made sacred by the presence of God inside of it. And so if that's the case, he's like, now think about that. Well, how does that affect the way you would use it? Which gets back to the, am I allowed to do something, whether is it, whether, or whether this is a good thing? You see, if something is just normal, you can do whatever you want with it, Right? But the minute something is sacred, you don't just do whatever you want with it, right? It's got a special purpose. Like one of the things that drives me nuts is when my kids take something that has a special purpose and use it for whatever they want. It's just, they just destroy everything. It just drives me crazy. And I'm like, that's not for that. That's, a, it's, that's not a hammer. It's a remote control, sweetheart. Can we—I'll get you a hammer. Just ask me, right? It's not—and and see, when you, real, when you realize that if you believe in Jesus, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That really changes the way you look at a lot of stuff, right? What should you eat? What should you smoke? What—who should you get on or shouldn't? I mean, all that stuff is, is changed based on what you believe you are. And what this passage is saying is you're part of Christ's body and you are a temple. You house the Spirit of God, which makes you fundamentally sacred, which means there are certain things that you can't engage in. And there's there's things that you can't do to each other, right? We can't do to each other because they're sacred. They're housing God's temple on top of the fact that they're already sacred because they bear God's image, whether they believe or not. Now, that only helps—listen— that only helps if you have a emotionally healthy view of what a temple is, right? I grew up Roman Catholic in a really—it was a small church. It was dark. It had these stained glass windows, and there was no fun head inside there. It it wasn't—my priest was never mean, but it's just not what church was. Church was—it was dark, and it was boring, and the people were old, and— You know, I, I mean, and I, I mean, I became an altar boy just because there was this blonde girl that I could like make faces at during the service and I could actually move, you know, and go get things and ring a bell and put the, you know, because it's just making the best of a situation. And, and, and we, and we had, and so see, see, if you, if I say, listen, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you want to be a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you want to be a boring, dark, dank, stone church where no fun is had and that you get to be, you'd be like, no, I don't want to be that. That's crazy. That sounds awful, right? So I don't care. But here's the thing. The question is not not what's your experience of a temple. The question is, what does the Bible say the temple is supposed to be, right? You go back to the Old Testament, and you read about what the temple was supposed to be. And you go, oh, was there, there sacrifices in that? Yes, there were. Yes, there were. But you know what also was there? The temple was the first place where God's Spirit came and empowered somebody to create art. For the very first moment of his creation, it was to be a place of creativity. Music was commanded to be there. There were uh, were about seven annual parties that had to happen among the Jewish people, and they were supposed to be centered in the temple. Almost every sacrifice, about half—well, not every, but half of the sacrifices that were offered to God turned into meals that were supposed to be eaten by God's people celebrating together, which included meat and wine. And they were commanded to eat it happily together. And the fact is, is though the temple had laws and rules and there was blood and animals died and there was a seriousness about the relatedness to God, it was a place of art and creativity and music and dancing and partying and meat and wine and fellowship and community and love and hope. That's what the temple was commanded to be about. Everything God reveals in the Old Testament was that the temple would be that kind of place. And that's what you are. That's what you are. And you get to house the Spirit of God. And then what—if you are that, what are you or aren't you going to do naked? I mean, you know, I mean, just think it through. And then lastly on this is the last verse says, "'You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body.'" Jesus died for your body, not just your spirit. He died for every last ounce of you, and he died for your body. And what should a cross-purchased person live like? If, if Jesus gave his life to pull you out of sin into the freedom of the Spirit of God, what does it mean or look like to go running back in, right? It doesn't make any sense. You're not—you were, you were, you were saved from that. You were ransomed out of that slavery, so that you could be his and so that you could be free. What does a free person act like? They're not supposed to act like a slave. So, okay, some quick applications of this. The first is um, we have to become a people of profundity over intensity, but as a culture, we are a people of intensity over profundity. And here's what I mean by that. Um, There are fundamentally two ways human beings experience pleasure and joy, and we are creatures constantly seeking pleasure and joy. Everybody from the moment that they're born can appreciate intensity. We all have brain pleasure centers. We all have nervous systems. We all like to feel good, and there are lots of ways that we can feel good, and we can increase the intensity of that feeling good and feel good, right? There was—apparently there was a— an experiment done in the 70s where they, they found a way to stimulate a rat's brain pleasure center. And then they gave the rat the choice between going back to that part of the case, cage and stimulating its brain pleasure center or eating. And apparently they had to get these rats and revive them because they would just go over there and just keep stimulating, keep stimulating, keep stimulating their pleasure centers. Um, and that's what food and sex and drugs and all kinds of things um, do for us. Adulteries, um, they, they evoke our most visceral pleasure centers, and those are very intense and very pleasurable experiences. The idea in being human is to develop the, the moral and spiritual capacities of profoundness so that the breadth of ways in which we can enjoy life and be happy become extremely broad, and the areas of intensity that we're meant to experience, we add a profoundness to them that keeps them under control so they don't go buck nuts crazy, and it actually increases how intense they are because of the added profundity. Why why in sexual studies do married women have more and more intense orgasms than any other women in the country or the world? Why is that? And more so if they, if they indicate that they have good emotional relationships with their husband. Why? Well, here's why. Because relational profundity is attached to sexual intensity and the two amp each other up so that the intensity increases and then that emotional intensity amps up the psychological profundity and they feed off of each other, creating a more and more intense experience so that a married couple that's psychologically healthy and that has a profound relationship can have more intense sex than people whipping each other with leather all the way up to here. And they just don't need that stuff. They just don't need it. Because the guy called on his way home and said, Sweetheart, can I get you something on the way home because I love you and I want to serve you with my body? Can I get you some cookies and cream or whatever? It's just a a fact. I mean, why are there people who've been married and very sexually active for 50 or 60 years and they just don't need pharmaceuticals or, and they just don't need drugs and they just don't need toys and they just don't need role-playing and they just don't need to do it upside down or in the, on the porch? Or it just, they, they, and they're just like, oh, we're still having a lot of fun. How is that possible? When, if you go to your doctor's office and you pick up a Cosmo magazine, you will read a letter from a 23-year-old girl writing in from New York City saying, I've been dating some guy for eight months and he wants to do this and I think it's a little demented, but that's just, he feels like he needs that for our sexual experience to be intense, to be fun, to be... Why? Because there's intensity, but there's no profundity in the relationship. There's none. And so you just need more intense arousal, and the only thing you do is to change things. You've got to change things. You've got to do something different. You because that's what intensity arousal addiction creates, a person who needs an ever-increasing intensity of experience. That's why nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what? I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find the most hardcore porn I can possibly find and, like, tape it up in my office. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Nobody just goes, wakes up and goes, you know what? I'm going to get me some kitty porn. People don't do that. They're, but they get intensity ad- arousal addicted to something, and then you just have to find something that's more intense. In your body's biological systems can only create intensity a few ways— You're just up against science. There's the only certain things you can do. You can add profundity and be psychologically healthier. You can get more deviant. It's up to you. It's just up to you. Hope that didn't meddle. But if you don 't commit to say here 's why I follow jesus here 's why I follow Jesus, because I believe Jesus is going to make me progressively more intellectually and morally and spiritually and emotionally healthy, and the more that happens, the more I will be able to appreciate the profoundness of the world I live in, which will both give me more things to enjoy and will both intensify and ground the intensity things i 'm meant to enjoy, including sex and food and whatever. We have to become people of profundity, and listen, we are not becoming more profound people in our culture. If we're going to do this, we have to swim against the stream. And it's going to be tough. And we're going to have to do it together because we're going to have to encourage each other because we're going to want to give up a lot because it's a lot easier to just go for the intense thing than to build the profound thing. Secondly, we need to face the reality of pornography. Um, Pornography creates arousal addiction that pushes people into addiction to intensity rather than profundity. It turns us inside out and we do not—I um, we, we, don't think we've sufficiently faced this as a people, and here's why this is important. Because as men, we, ha- men, we have to realize that every sin, but this sin in particular, will take you farther than you want to go, longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. That's true of all sin. It's especially true of this one. Um, and what we also need to know is that for, for parents, and you know, if you're a parent of a, even if, even if you've got all daughters, it doesn't matter. You, there's got to be, if she's going to get married, there's got to be a man worth marrying, right? I mean, there've got to be men, and a number of secular psychologists have been coming out fairly recently and been saying what some pastors have been saying for a really long time, that manhood is being completely eviscerated in, in contemporary culture. Um, and it is, it is staggering, and it, and it is all the while happening while pornography is the fastest growing industry in America. I don't know if you know that. Pornography is the fastest-growing industry in America. For every 400 movies created in Hollywood, 11,000 porn, porn movies come out. 11,000 for every 400. And you could argue that some of the Hollywood movies are just about porn. <laughs> um, pornography is a $15 billion with a B dollar industry in the United States, which means it's larger than pro football, basketball, and baseball combined. And 80 to 90% of, of porn that's consumed in America is consumed free. It's a $15 billion industry, but 80 to 90% of it is consumed free. Because there's so many young girls trying to get in the industry because they think they can make some money. So there's a ton of free stuff out there. So you take whatever—however much pornography $15 billion creates and you multiply that by nine times. The average young man in America views 50 porn clips a week— And then add this to some other phenomenon like gaming. The average young man by the time they're 21 has played 10,000 hours of gaming, usually in seclusion, usually by themselves, not aiding in that young person, learning how to relate to other people, especially an insane sex that puts out phosphorus and contradictory signals. And so there, there have been studies of younger men off in college, and the anxiety level in young men going to college and relating to women is through the roof. They, they, they're, they're getting worse at talking to people. They feel more anxious. And it's not just like, will she say yes? Now it's, I don't know how to talk to her. If you look at numbers about men right now, they're 30% more likely to drop out of school. Out, girls outperform boys in every subject on every academic level, from kindergarten to PhD level. Women outperform men across the board in numbers— and in output, men are, men are in record numbers not going to college, not finishing college, not caring about college, not finishing high school. And if you need the help, logically they're a lot more prone if they do so to become criminals. Two th- thirds more, two thirds of special ed students are males, and they're five times more likely to be labeled ADHD. Um, if you go on my blog, there's a video from um, Philip Zimbardo, who's an emeritus University of Stanford professor on this. He's not a Christian, but he, he he explores in just a five minute talk. You you need to go see this about how gaming and pornography and some of these things are eviscerating masculinity. And here's here's why I say it that forcefully because the question is okay, what do we do? Here's here's what we got to do. Um, let me, and let some of the other men, um. Do the work of sticking it to guys who've got the porn addictions. Okay, don't you do it, because listen, um, we, manhood did not get passed on. Okay, and 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 the, the older generations of men, um, a lot of hem, them have been have been great men, but culturally, manhood didn't get passed on. There is generations of young men now. We're generations of boys. We don't know how to be men. We've never been called. We've never been shown how to be men because it was just assumed you knew, because I guess there were there were generations of manhood where you just watched your dad and you just did it and that's all there was to it and culture didn't change as rapidly and so you just kind of figured it out and you were a man and there wasn't pornography on every phone, you know? There weren't false women everywhere, right? And so you just, you know, you picked a real one and you, you know, figured out what you could do. And, and now that's not the case and so we've got men and so here's what we've got. You've got a man who's looking at lots of pornography and kind of caught in this thing. And here's the thing. Sexual sin feels worse than every other sin because, because it's a sin against the body because it gets a hold on you. Psychologically, what happens is the feeling of being trapped takes on a moral connotation so that you feel completely lost too. The, the feeling of, of being addicted and trapped and a, unable to get free— um, cr- creates an association to guilt so that you feel— l- you, just as you feel out of control, you feel salvationally out of control too and morally out of control so that you don't feel like God loves you, you don't feel like God wants to help you, you don't feel like the gospel is for you. And it's a very, it's a very confusing kind of situation. It's extremely visceral. It is an addiction. And and here's what we've got to do. We've got to help these guys, okay? We've got to help them. Listen, I want you to know— uh, you probably want to know this since I, I don't have a pornography addiction. I don't look at any pornography. But guess what? I have software on every device I own to keep me from it. it. My wife gets an email of every website I ever visit, including two of our elders, Dan Pika and Jim Tanner, because that's how terrified I am. I mean, that's, that's what it takes because I am as sick as anybody else. And listen, here's what you get in a marriage. You get a guy who's in this thing, and what you get, what do you get from a wife? You get the normal, completely appropriate emotion of hating his guts right? That's what you get. I mean, the woman feels humiliated, angry. Like I'm a real three-dimensional person, and you have to have—but here's what happened. Is that perfectly legitimate? It's perfectly legitimate. Is it? Is it the exact right emotion of an emotionally healthy person to be really angry about that if you're a woman? Absolutely, right? But what, what are you going to get from it if you just then turn that loose on him, right? It just destroys—it's just going to defile it. to is going to fall apart. It is, right? And so— one of the things I think we need to do is I think we need to I think we need to face this thing. We need to say, listen, we need to get the dudes together, and we need to try to help. We need to do something helpful, and we need to not just gut them, and we need to recognize the the, the profound addiction. We need to we need to recognize the sexualized culture, the profoundly sexual. I mean, there's pornography everywhere legally, and we can't flee from that. We're just driving down the road. We're, we're, I mean. We're, we're just looking at a website about apples, you know. Like you can you can you can Google like fish fry and you'll get naked women on Google. I mean, it's crazy, and and you just and that's the culture that we men live in. And we it's and so listen, we, we're going to have to be constructive, not self righteous about this, because otherwise it's just nothing's going to happen, nothing good's going to happen. But. The guys that are stuck in this, and the guys that aren't stuck in this, are going to have to band together, and they're going to have to work hard at this. And listen, I, and it's going to—it's going to take very bold, very heroic. Listen, you listen. If you are a guy and you are just this deep in this, listen, you have an opportunity to be a hero. This is the hardest fight you'll ever fight. You need to be the hero that slays the dragon of you. I mean, you just—you. That's what it's—it's going it's to take. It's the hardest thing you're ever going to do, and you have to fight you, and you can win. The regenerate, redeemed, Jesus loved, Jesus died for, part of the, temple of the temple of the Holy Spirit and a member of Christ himself is in there. And it can flourish. And it can push out what's there. And there are those who would help in loving. Listen, I think—I've been around the men's group enough. I think that those of these are broken and humble, but yet intense enough men that you can find help there. You can come to me. You can come to anybody you trust. But I think you can find help there. All right, we need to keep moving. Marital stuff. I'm going to talk about that next t- in two weeks. Chapter seven is all about that, so I'm just going to let it go right now. The next question is like, what do, then what do, what? do I do, Nick? What's the positive? What's the positive? Like, okay, well then, what are we supposed to do sexually? And I think you just ask these questions within the realm of marriage. What can I do? and What can I do? Just you. Just ask these questions. That's all. It's not rocket science. They'll be on the website. And so each of these verses, each of these points, they become a question we can ask ourselves. But ultimately what this comes down to, and it's one of the reasons why I think Paul uses this word, is are you controlled by your stomach or are you controlled by the Spirit? Because a lot of us think, well, my body wants to do this, that's my body, and then uh, you've got the spirit. No, it's not. No, the body is the neutral figure. The question is you've got appetites, and you need to call it something like your belly, something pejorative, because you've got you to see how not noble it is. Are you, a, are you the kind of person that, that reacts on the basis of your stomach? Whatever desire pops up, you just do. Or are you a person that functions from, from a spiritual, or principled, or moral place where you say, This is what I'm for? This is why I exist. This is my identity. You know, did you notice what Paul said? He didn't say you can't do it. He said, that's not what your body is for. The body is not for sexual immorality. It's for the Lord. So then the question is, what do I do? This is how we will end. What do I do then? And here's what you do. They're both in the passage. The first thing is, you flee illicit sexual desires. You have to run. There's three places where Paul says to flee. In this one he says flee sexual morality. A few chapters later he says flee idolatry. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 he says flee the love of money. Because all three of those will trap you, and they will get you, and you have to run. And listen, you'd be like, Nick, I don't want to be one of those Christian like um, repressed sexuality prudish people. I want to enjoy life, and I want to enjoy my sexuality. Listen, Repression is a technical term that refers to pushing down memories and emotions, not desires, not bodily desires. Some of those need to be suppressed, and that is not the same thing as them being repressed. Those are different things, and people conflate those all the time. And here, here's what you need to understand. You need to get past the hesitation and just Run. Okay? And th- let me give you a quick hunting example. Um, deer, the bigger the buck, the more likely he is to take one last look at what he's running from. And a lot of us are like that. We're like big mule deer bucks. And we just, we, you know, yeah, I, I'm going to go buy that magazine rack at the store, but I just think I need to see what baby bliss is like, you know? Or how I can have a beach body in nine weeks and I've watched, like, you can go online, you can watch hunting videos. Just type in mule deer hunt Colorado or something like that on YouTube, and here's what'll happen. The hunter will be there, and the big buck is there, and all of a sudden, the, the buck turns to leave, and the hunter goes, oh, stink. And like, you can hear the guide. The guide, goes, the guide goes, get your scope on the deer. Before he goes over the top of the hill, he'll look back one last time. And, and it, just like clockwork, that mule deer will walk up that hill, he'll get up to the top, and he'll stop, he'll turn broadside, and he'll turn his head back and look. And that's when you hear... And it goes, and, you know, runs off a little bit. It's, and it's because you had to have that one last look. Now, that's, that's different than turkey hunting. <laughs> Turkeys are totally different. You, you hunt, you to get, you get camo, and you just breathe a little wrong. You just blink your eye, and they, like, feel it. They don't even have to see you. They just think something. They are gone. They're gone. They're just, they run. They fly. They, they gobble. They do just they just as fast as they can go. They are gone because they're little birds. What are they going to fight? I'm going to call you with my toe. You know, <laughs> what are they going to do? Nothing, right? And because of that, a lot fewer turkeys die. It, a lot, because they just, they just run, right? And listen, guys and girls, this is the only time when the, spirit, the spiritual application for the sermon is, listen, you have got to be a turkey. <laughs> you, have, you have to. You have got to be a turkey as opposed to a deer. You just got to go. Okay? Because you cannot change how your viscerality works. You can't change that. You are supposed to be driven insane by your wife when she is just trying to go to bed. Okay? That's just it's supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be like, oh yeah, baby. You brush those teeth. You know, that's that is supposed to work like that. Okay? And you and you want that. And wives, I know it annoys you, but deep down on some level you should want that. Okay? And listen, and and it's supposed to work when you're like sixty-eight. You know, you're 68. You come out of that salt and pepper hair, <laughs> and your husband's like, mm, "Yeah." You know, it's supposed to. And look, look, we gotta be pretty visceral for that to keep working. You know what I'm saying? It's just, and you know, time does things to all of us. You know, you like I want my wife, when I'm I'm kind of older. You know, I'm like, Ugh. and so, I'm just like, baby, I can't, I can't climb the bed by myself. Can you help me? Or she'd be like, I can't, sure, I can help you. I can help you get it. You know, that's what I want. That right? But what that means is the pornography, all that stuff's cheating. That's all cheating. Right? And so you've got to run from that because God, God didn't make a mistake when he made you visceral. He didn't make a mistake. That sexual experience is supposed—listen, sex works like heroin on your brain. I don't know if you know that. It's like a little bit of heroin on your brain. And here's why. Because it is supposed to transform your spouse emotionally in your eyes in that act and moment. Because it's supposed to fuse you together forever. In a family, in a marriage, as a couple, against the world, living together, totally one. It's supposed to do that. And because it's so intense, things can cheat in on it, right? And then the second thing is, um, then what do I do positively? Okay, that's what I do negatively. I run from the, the sexually immoral stuff. But then what do I do positively? Well, just ask yourself, based on those other questions, how do I live in such a way that glorifies God and displays Christ in my, sexual, in my sexuality? And I'm not going to get into... Um, Listen, next Sunday at 5 or 6, whenever we have it, I will get extremely direct about this, including positions, toys, all that kind of junk, because it's got to be talked about theologically. Listen, that is theological, and I will get that graphic, but I'm going to spare the rest of you who don't want to hear about that right now on that. But listen, everything we do is theological. Everything we do. Our, our sexuality is profoundly theological. What we do to each other, what that means. Everything we do sexually means something in our relatedness. How we do it, it's positionality, where, how privacy is involved or modesty is or isn't involved, when that's appropriate, when it isn't, what kind of positions say what about how we're emotionally interacting and serving or not serving each other. All those things have emotional and theological and interpersonal implications. They matter, and they— and, I'm talking going to talk about right now. So you, you can either think it through yourself based on what I gave you or come and get help in the remedial session. Um, but here's the biggest issue, and we'll end, we're getting right now. Um, the biggest issue is this. What, what you're going to do with your body will, ha- will have everything to do with what you think you are. And if you think that you're just a, a piece of meat on a spinning rock and you're here and— you just have to do the best you can with the life you've got, and, you know, then you're, you're going to go out there, you're just going to try to be happy, and you're going to do stuff, and you're going to feel, when you feel alone, you're going to just turn to whatever arms are open to you, and, um, you know, you'll do your best and try to minimize damage, but um, that's just the way it's going to be. And, and that's perfectly reasonable and perfectly logical based on the assumptions you come to the table with. It is. But here, but here's what, here's what I want to tell you. That's not what God thinks about you. It's not. God has called you in a relationship with the risen Jesus and through that either has made you or wants to make you part of his own body, a temple of his own spirit, a cross-purchased person whose life is infinitely valuable, whose sexuality is a profound gift given to you for great purposes, for the things he's called us to in the world and is a deep part of who and what we are. And for you to believe that and to whatever extent that sexuality has been broken, either by somebody else or by you, it can be, in the words of verses 9 to 11, washed, set apart, made right with God, made free again. That's what God says you are or can be. And and he's, he's, he's imploring you and I to live out of that identity, to be that, to accept that. That's the good news. And it is... It is a good and pleasant thing even within those constraints because you, you, don't, you aren't just left alone with that intensity. There is a profundity added to it that increases and increases and increases the joy and glory of what God's intention for us was sexually and bodily because we will be in the body forever. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Father, thank you so much for the patience of these folks. Um, And I pray that you would bless them. And I pray that you would help us to learn and apply and care about and love the truths you want to teach us. I pray, Father, that we would be a more and more sexually healed people and, and that we would see more and more the implications of the importance of the body. Pray in Jesus' name.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you'd like to find more episodes you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast you can also find us online on apple podcasts google podcasts overcast and other apps like that we hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.